This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Because I don't even know what pandas taste like. I've eaten very few in my life. The sound you hear are all the grad students changing their CVs up to apply for industry positions. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we speak with three industry scientists about their careers and how graduate school prepared them for the journey. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 107. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Erneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Happy New Year, Dan. Happy New Year, Josh. 2019. 2019. For those of you listening in the future. 2019. That's right, isn't it? I, I haven't had to write it down yet, so I haven't messed it up. You know, I haven't either, actually, now that you I will it. mess it up. Yeah, yeah, eventually. Yeah, so we're recording pretty early in the year. Did you have a good holiday, a good break? Uh, it was really good. You know, I was talking to somebody today about how it, it really, this early New Year is a weird time because I feel like, I don't know about you, Dan, but that last week or two of the year... You really just do nothing but eat and lay around. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. You're, no. you're making it sound almost like it's a bad thing. Not, well, not at all. It's great. But then it's such a stark transition to then go back to work and jump back into life. And, you know, we always do these resolutions where, all right, now I'm going to run three miles a day and eat great right on the heels of I've been laying on the couch 10 hours a day. Yeah, that is <laughs> one of those weeks. causes the other and then prevents it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I always look forward to that uh, that time just to unwind, and it was great. To the benefit of you and me and anybody who has access to this, I got up to Pennsylvania for the break to visit my sister, uh, and she lives in southeastern Pennsylvania. I grew up in northwestern Pennsylvania. Mm, yep. So I went to southeastern Pennsylvania, near Philadelphia, Wilmington, Delaware area, and picked up some Victory Brewing beers for us. I've got two to sample today. Oh, I feel like I've had some Victory Brewing in the past, but I have not had these. These don't look familiar to me. I know you've had some in the past, but these are two riffs on the same theme. So the first one we're going to taste today is the Golden Monkey Belgian Style Triple. And we've had Belgians pretty recently on the show, haven't we? Yeah, we had a Belgian beer actually... From Belgium, I believe, <laughs> a listener beer. Yeah. Uh, the monk, the Trappist beer, right? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm kind of into a, a Belgian theme these days. I don't know. This may be my, my new flavor of the month. Uh, maybe this will be our 2019 goal. Oh, that's what we were going to do. We were going to go out and get some Belgian beers together. We'll have to do that's that. That's right. We'll get there. So did you give this one a taste? What do you think? Oh, You're going to pick up on a, a thicker, maltier flavor. There's candy sugar in this, dextrose. Um, I think delicious. Yeah, good. These are very flavorful beers. I think what I like is these have a very light color where when I look at it, I almost could imagine, oh, I'm going to have an American style. It's going to be a Budweiser, yeah. Yeah, but then you taste it and there's so much flavor. So you could go to your, your graduate school party and drink this beer and look like you're drinking a cheap, terrible beer, but actually enjoy the flavor. This is a way to pass yourself off as a as a commoner. I think grad students are a sophisticated bunch. I think they're maybe uh, your next undergrad beer. party. Yeah, there you go. Your next undergrad party. And then everyone Pour this be like, oh, your, what is this? Pour this into your uh, beer pong cup. I think what every undergrad party needs is a keg of nine and a half percent. So I didn't bring that up. This is nine and a half percent alcohol by volume. 
and I, I think of a perfectly good representation of the style and very tasty. Great. I could think of no way to improve it. Well, I'm glad you said that, Josh, because I'll start from Victory Brewing uh, is the Sour Monkey Sour Brett Triple. And I know you are not a sour fan. Not traditionally. But while I was in Pennsylvania, we picked up a mixed pack of, of beers and the Sour Monkey came along with the Golden Monkey and I thought it was at least worth sampling. Okay, so you're saying the first beer I just had, this, that was the Golden Monkey. That was the Golden Monkey. This is the Sour Monkey, which presumably is a similar similar mash bill, but they made it sour somehow. Similar hop, malt, malt profile, same ABV, also 9.5%. I have a question, actually. I should know this. Um, how do they make sour beer? What makes it sour? We're going to get into that right after you taste okay, it. Okay. Well, I don't want to ruin it by describing it too too closely for And before I do, I want to say one of our listeners, Adrian, is going to be very excited to hear us discussing sour beers. I met him back in the fall, and he insisted that he had some sour beers that he thought we would like. I was skeptical. Before you take a sip, I want you to just tell me what the nose on that one is for you. Urine. (laughs) Really? I don't get that out of it. But I could think it. The color kind of maybe is evocative, yeah. Give it a smell with that in mind. Yeah, no, I can see that. Okay, all right. It's got a little funkiness to the smell. Oh, God. <laughs> Probably tough after the Ooh. sweeter mm. Belgian triple. Why did they ruin this perfectly okay. good Belgian triple? You, you got to take another step. And, and while you work on that, um, I have learned a lot about this just in the last um, little bit. Let me tell you, this is what it reminds me of. Um, and this is not so bad. But do you, have you ever made homemade lemonade? Yeah. So if you if you make homemade lemonade and you don't quite add not enough country sugar, time, right? not country time, okay, uh, with a lemon, fresh squeeze lemon juice, fruit, uh, yeah. water and sugar, and you don't add enough sweetener to it, so it's too sour. Yep, that's what this reminds me a little bit of. Right. So so very citrusy, very lemony. I think if you're a person who likes that flavor, so if you're a Mike's Hard Lemonade fan or something like that, I think this could be very lemony. Your yeah, yeah your entry into beer. What I really liked is in the description on Victory's website, they say, uh, Roma is very varied, which I don't know what that means, with lemon, sour, and mild Britannomyces notes. Did that not spark your interest? uh, It sounds like a microbe. It sure does. So we know most beers brewed with Saccharomyces cerevisiae, but um, what I'm learning and and had no idea about, because we didn't get this deeply into beer brewing, um, some beers are accidentally or intentionally brewed with a different genus entirely, and it's Britannomyces, which is Greek for British fungus. Um, it was originally discovered when people were researching spoilage of British ales. Um, and this was one of the uh, microbes, one of the, the yeasts that was causing some of those off flavors. But so it's a wild yeast, so it's something that, that is natural in the environment. So, yeah, I want to I jump out in front of you a little bit here, Dan. So what you're telling me is that a sour beer is basically beer that has gone bad. I don't think every sour beer is necessarily brewed with Britannomyces intentionally. Um, I think you could probably get to it with other microbes. But some beers are certainly, they add Britannomyces to give it these extra additional flavors. And let me tell you about some of the flavor compounds. So Britannomyces, if you give it a lot of glucose in aerobic conditions, will make acetic acid, which is giving us some of the sour flavor. Um, but it also produces compounds like 4-ethylphenol, 
which according to Wikipedia, tastes like band-aids, <laughs> barnyards, horse stables, and antiseptic. I will say I'm not getting those flavors. I'm not uh, getting band-aid flavor. Isovaleric acid, sweaty saddle, cheese, rancidity. Are you getting? I get a, a little, little cheese. A hint of cheese. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I was reading about Britannomyces and... Uh, band-aids? Band-aids. I don't even know what <laughs> band-aids taste like. I've eaten very few in my life. Oh, my goodness. Uh, one of the articles I was reading said, say your beer gets infected with Britannomyces bruxellensis and you weren't expecting your beer to taste like a horse blanket. <laughs> <laughs> that might come as a slightly unwelcome surprise. Trust us in the right context. A little bit of horse blanket's just fine. You know, I do remember, Dan, back in grad school, you had this cardboard wheel that indicated it, it was a legit the wheel. The wine aroma the wheel. The wine yeah. aroma wheel of different uh, aromas you could get for wine. And I, I do remember most of them were like smoke or berries or whatever, but there was a cat urine. Yeah, and, and I think what people are doing with Britannomyces, there are a few beers that are brewed exclusively with Britannomyces. A lot of beers, especially in the Belgian style, will have it added because it give, it imparts another flavor profile that distinguishes this beer from the next one. I, I think it's interesting. It's, an, it's a whole other genus, a whole other realm of... Of flavors. And certainly growing in popularity, uh, but I do find it a little bit interesting that brewers are now profiting off of beer that in the olden days, uh, a brewmaster would probably dump down the drain. It was a spoiled beer, <laughs> and now now we're such hipsters, we're like, oh, well, that's the best. Is the great. Yeah. <laughs> we eat moldy cheese and sour beer. That's true. All right, well, uh, thanks for sharing this, Dan. I uh, admittedly switched back to the Golden Monkey. Oh, well, keep trying it. I think it improves with time. Hey, Dan, we had some exciting news from our friends at Promega. Tell me about it. So as our listeners will remember, uh, over the past couple of months, we were talking about a really special art contest held by Promega where they offered up just for listeners of Hello PhD to submit their scientific works of art, and the winner would actually be flown out to Promega to meet some industry scientists. And do we have a winner? We do. So Promega would like to thank all everyone who submitted their beautiful artwork to the Promega Hello PhD Art Contest. And they're happy to announce the grand prize winner is Aparna from Johns Hopkins University, uh, who submitted an amazing image of a mouse brain slice. And I saw it. It was really cool. Yeah, it was cool. Congratulations, Aparna. So Aparna will be visiting Madison, Wisconsin in just a couple weeks to meet Promega scientists and also attend the opening of the Promega Employee Art Showcase, where her piece will be on display. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. I think it's pretty cool they have an Employee Art Showcase. That's, I know. Yeah, that's we should cool have that thing. at Hello PhD. We should. Just uh, you and me. Yeah. We'll do our best, uh, our best stick, art. stick drawing. I'd like to submit this mouse brain slice I just came across. Jeez. <laughs> oh, uh, but anyway, congratulations to Aparna. And as always, our friends at Promega wanted our listeners to know anytime you struggle or have a research question, Promega scientists are here to help. Just go to promega.com slash PhD support to find out how to chat, call, or email. All right, Josh, uh, let's get into our main topic today. All right, Dan, we've got a really fun interview today to share. Yeah, a lot of our listeners and, and people that we interact with day to day tell us, hey, I really love science. I'm not sure the academic track is the place I want to be, or I really love science, and I'm not sure there's a job for me on the academic track. And so we like to bring you stories from people who have maybe taken a different career path. Uh, and so today we've got three PhD scientists that are working at a company called 
23andMe. I've heard of that one. Yeah. So these scientists come from pretty different backgrounds, I would say. They're, they came um, through graduate school in very different programs in different places. They're doing very different research at this company. But um, I think what you're going to see in this interview, Josh, as you have seen by doing the interview, that they're contributing their own expertise in really interesting ways. And what I was really interested in, Josh, is learning about how their graduate training prepared them or didn't prepare them in some cases for those roles. Yeah, absolutely. And and Dan, you're absolutely right. I talk to graduate students a lot about careers. And a lot of grad students find themselves in a really tricky spot where they do come to the conclusion academic research is not for them, but they've had very little opportunity to experience or understand what research in other contexts, especially industry, is actually like. And there are very few people around them who've had that experience. So I think that's one thing that I found interesting, our listeners might find interesting, is to really, this will peel back the curtain um, a little bit to learn about what the day-to-day is like from some scientists working at a really cutting-edge company. Yeah, it's so easy to have contact with an academic PI every day and to know what they do, but it's so rare for somebody to go off to industry and then come back and hang out and tell you about what that's like. All right, Dan, so I had a chance to talk to three scientists, all with PhD backgrounds, um, who are fairly early in their career, but are all working at 23andMe right now. Um, and I talked to Jennifer, Fa, and Janie. And while their backgrounds are similar, they have three very different roles. Uh, Jennifer does science communication for 23andMe. Something a lot of our listeners are interested in. I've, you know, We've got a lot of um, people interested in doing science communication, science outreach, so, so she's a, a great voice for that. Definitely. Um, she blogs, she does social media posts, a lot of communication of a lot of the science going on at her company. And then we talked to Fa, who is a senior scientist uh, with a computational background, who I think, as you'll hear, has a position that's very recognizable to a lot of grad students. He's doing code, um, doing analysis um, most of his days. And then we talked to Janie, who works in the data collection um, aspect of 23andMe, um, who does a lot of surveys with clients of 23andMe and does a lot of analysis um, of that survey data. All right, Josh, well, let's listen to the interview and then we can discuss what we heard after we're done. So I'm Jennifer McCrite, and I'm the scientist in charge of research communications here at 23andMe. I've been here a little over a year, and what research communications means in my context is I'm specifically communicating um, with different science that comes out of our research team to other scientists, um, but as part of my role, I'm also involved with kind of fact-checking other scientific materials that go out to the general public to make sure that you know, it's still scientifically accurate and free of jargon, um, but easy to understand. And uh, my background is that I got my PhD in the Department of Genome Sciences at the University of Washington, uh, where I was studying the evolution of microRNA in primates. And while I was there and even starting undergrad, I also ran uh, a science blog and did a lot of public speaking just kind of for fun on the side. And so that's why, even though I come from a kind of hardcore science background, I ended up in science communication. That sounds great. Really interesting. So, hi, this is Pa. I am a senior uh, scientist in computational biology in the research group at 3 So, I've been with the company for five years now, so this is actually my first job out of graduate school. So, it's been great so far. So, my, my current focus right now is on translating uh, genetic uh, association studies into drug concepts. So I did, I did my PhD uh, uh, in biostatistics at Harvard, 
and prior to that, I uh, had my undergraduate master's in computer science uh, from Stanford. Great. Thanks, Fa. I'm Janie Shelton. I'm a scientist on the data collection team here at 23andMe. And just to give a little context to what that means, um, so about 80% of our customers who are genotyped participate in our research program. And in order to do that, we ask them to fill out a series of um, web-based surveys. And so we have sort of a uh, health profile sort of intake survey. And then based on that, we target them surveys that are relevant to health conditions they may have. Uh, we also collect data on personality, traits, and preferences, uh, idiosyncrasies, all kinds of stuff. So my team is responsible for developing all of those surveys and questions that go out to our research participants. Um, so I've been here for about three years. This is my second job out of grad school, and my background is epidemiology and biostatistics, so I have a master's in public health from USC and a PhD in epidemiology from UC Davis. So, yeah, pretty pretty general health research background, and um, so my job entails basically um, developing data collection instruments, designing studies, and doing data analysis. Yeah, that's really interesting, um, especially how varied each of the three of you, you have very different roles, it sounds like, within the, the company. You all have these sort of scientific graduate school backgrounds, but you're doing very different things on a day-to-day basis, it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. And there are probably even more people across the company we could have pulled in that are doing even more diverse things. <laughs> yeah, well, sort of along those lines, and, and anybody can jump in, but what is a typical day like for you in your current role? Very fast-paced. <laughs> I would say, this is Janie again, I would say that one of the things that's really unique about working here is just the the pace of our scientific research is really accelerated as compared to academia. So when I was in academia or working for the UN where I was before this, everything was very focused on one study or one goal. And here we have, you know, 10 or 12 different studies all, you know, requiring at the same time. So the pace is definitely very accelerated. Yeah, on top of that, I find that I'm working on much more diverse topics, too. So instead of, like, grad school where I'm working on the same topic for six years, that here every day could be something totally different. Um, So I might be running a Twitter or Reddit chat one day or reviewing blog posts or doing interviews or making sure people are going to conferences they should be attending. And it's it's always a little something different. I like that diversity of things. Yeah, and um, my day, I guess my day is, is the least different. From, from academia and that, you know, coming to work, uh, write some R code or Python code to analyze some data. Uh, every so often, write paper, review paper from collaborator. But uh, for me, though, I think the, 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 big, the, the biggest difference is the, the measure of success. I think our, uh, in, in industry in general, perhaps, is that the measure of success is a bit more uh, holistic than academia. And not everything is measured in papers. Uh, sorry. So, um, you know, in my case, if I help build some tools or reports or discover a new drug target, that is a success. Yeah, no, that that actually leads in great to one of the things I wanted to ask. And, and Fa, I'm glad you mentioned, because I was going to predict that yours seemed um, the most similar. But I know certainly you, Jennifer, but probably you also, Janie, what you're doing now probably varies quite a bit from what you did as a graduate student. So along those lines, how do you feel like your graduate training prepared you for what you do now, even if it is really different on a day-to-day? 
Oh, yeah, I can definitely speak to that. Um, obviously, you know, I'm not um, pipetting anymore. I'm not r- running code anymore. Um, but I think the main takeaway from grad school that helps me today is really just being able to juggle a complex project. And in my case, it's now multiple projects and keeping track of that and being very independent and kind of being able to forge my own path. Um, I think before I came to graduate school, I was much more used to kind of having the project laid out in front of me and people telling me what I should be doing. But grad school really taught me to think for myself um, and, and come up with that strategy for projects. And so that's definitely applicable to what I'm doing now. And obviously just the genetic background that I learned and that expertise I still use all the time when I'm reviewing materials. Yeah, and just to add to that, um, I think grad school really teaches you to defend your scientific decisions and to be able to articulate why you made a choice to do things one way versus another way um, or why you think that one strategy is is preferred among another strategy. So as someone who prefers to be sort of non-confrontational, I think graduate school really taught me how to defend my scientific choices and be prepared be prepared to do so in a conversation with an external stakeholder or someone who, you know, you have to maybe take a different tone or use different jargon with. But, um, but I think that just generally being able to articulate the decisions that you make and why you make them is, is part of how the grad school training really helps in a scientific industry job. Yes, definitely. Even from a communications perspective, I use that all the time. I don't just kind of wing it that, oh, I think this would work. Um, I have to back up my strategies with data from like traffic on Twitter or we deploy surveys to measure scientists' perceptions of our research program. And so it's still, it's still very data-based even if I'm not analyzing genetic data anymore. Yeah, what do you feel like are the biggest differences from being in academia, being in graduate school to working in industry? Because as you probably know, as you probably remember, being, being grad students, you don't always have that perspective. Most grad students don't know at all what it's even like to work in industry. It's like this mysterious world that's out there that you hear good things about and bad things about. So uh, what have you found to be the most different from academia? I think as Foss said, you know, our measure of success is really different. So what we're trying to achieve every day might be slightly different from the academic goals, right? So in academia, you might be really focused on trying to get your paper out or trying to design a course that you're teaching or some, you know, some type of administrative goal. Um, But here we're trying to provide better content on interpreting genetics for our customers. We're trying to grow a company, you know, so we're trying to have successful collaboration. So there are all these other measures of success that we focus on. And I feel like I've learned a lot more about the world of business and sort of all the different stakeholders that you might need to effectively communicate with. Um, And so it's just a constant learning experience to be in industry. And I'd also add that, at least for me personally, I find that work-life balance is better in industry, which is not what I would have necessarily Mm -hmm. expected um, when I was in graduate school. But in grad school, you know, there's just less structures. You don't have that, like, vacation or sick days. And so I always found myself feeling guilty whenever I did take a day off, but there wasn't the structure to say, hey, you're allowed to do this. And I think a lot of academic departments have this kind of culture of working 60, 80 hours a week, all weekends, all the time. We're here. It's like, you know, it's much more nine to five. And occasionally things will get busier at some times, but um, you feel like you're actually getting compensated for the work that you're putting in. And um, at least, yeah, from my perspective, I found it to be much better for 
or just general mental health (laughs) and and just the separation, right? Because, like, I remember in grad school, my my PI would be emailing me at 3 a.m. on a Saturday, and I was expected to respond by, like, you know, 9 a.m. on Sunday. So, uh, So here it's more like, it's, it's just more like, oh, you know, so sorry to bother you on a weekend type thing. Or there's this respect and, and sort of partitioning of work and, and life that I did not see in graduate school either. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And Fa, I'd be really interested to hear from you on this question too, since you stated some of your day-to-day is more similar from maybe the work you're doing to an academic setting. But what differences have you observed uh, between academia and your current role? Yeah, I think I agree on, on all the points before. I think the, the biggest selling point, obviously, is the, the work-life balance, and that uh, is, is a marathon, not a sprint. No one's here for a short period of time. Everyone you know, is a career scientist, and we can do this for years and years to come. So important to, to take time. Uh, but from from a kind of content perspective, I still, I still write code. But one thing is that all of our code are shared for example, and is, is expected that somebody else is going to look at it, it's expected that it, it belongs to a larger group, and it's not just one and done project, right? Whereas in many cases in an academia setting, when you write a paper and that's the end of your of your research program for that one, and you can just throw it all away or, or you put it on some archive and you move on to the next project. You know, that's quite a bit of continuation of what you do build onto the next one. And uh, so, so in coding style, you know, there, there is at least a uh, repository that we put our code in, our colleagues can, can use and use them again. Another, I guess, like that, what I mentioned before, the, the measure of success uh, is very different. So, and even if we fail, uh, you know, sometimes when you try some experiment, you propose an idea, you try it out, it didn't work. It's not forgotten. So we, we would also, you know, our, the manager, the, rec- the, the, the management, I guess, recognizes that and also kind of reward or don't really ding you for an experiment that didn't work. Whereas in academia, you don't really get anything from, from, an, from a null result uh, most of the time anyway. Yeah, I think like the, the goal is quite a bit more broad. For example, if someone, if you build a really cool predictive model that we can predict a, a certain disease or certain condition or traits really well, in addition to maybe writing a paper, we will actually put that out into the world as a report, right? work with the FDA and, and try to make that useful for real people. So I think the, the benefit uh, to the world can be a bit more tangible, I think, and it's some, sometimes it's still more satisfying that your work is immediately being used uh, or even on my side of the world where we, we make um, drug targets and things so we, I can you know, see the con- drug concepts and targets that I worked on a few years ago progressing through the pipeline that, you know, in one day, not too far ahead, we'll see it in human, we'll, benefit, we'll be benefiting the real people. Uh, and I think these, these are all very gratifying to see. Yeah, no, that's great. I think you all are really, you're really selling industry to probably a lot of our listeners who are in grad school now. But kind of related to that, so think about your own experience. And you might remember this, but but for a lot of graduate students and postdocs who are in academia, it can really feel like a big leap to leave the academic world and transition into industry, which has a lot of unknowns. Was that a concern that you had or or was that decision a challenging one? Um, but how did you decide to pursue an industry job in the first place? Well, so, yeah, I'd like to just suggest to people to try to do some internships during graduate school so it's not such a 
such a mystery um, what these different companies are like. So, um, you know, as someone who didn't have any industry experience, I was, I was, I had a very negative view of pharma, for example, coming from the sort of public health research field. I didn't feel like pharma companies were necessarily doing things that were in the best interest of um, the communities they were serving. And I, I couldn't have been more wrong, um, I think, in that, in that perspective. So there's a lot of really great roles for people who are very mission-driven, very committed to their fields and, um, and helping folks do their scientific research. So I would just recommend trying to get a little exposure if you're just curious. I mean, the fact of the matter is there's just not enough professor positions for the number of people being trained. So it's just sort of practical to explore other options for your future career, in my view. And did you do any internships when you were going through the process? So... I did a bunch of internships in undergrad. I went to a school that required that I did five uh, internships before I graduated with my bachelor's degree, and that was really uh, formative in terms of understanding what I wanted to pursue in my career. And then in graduate school, I sort of made the mistake of not doing that. And so looking back, I think it would have been uh, really helpful to, to get some more exposure into different areas as I was pursuing my, my PhD. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, another point to, to raise too is that you know the especially in the biomedical field, um, the the divide is no longer uh, it, it's no longer a one way street always, right? Uh, and and collaboration happens a whole lot more frequently. You know, we have I'm not I don't really know the exact number that we have tens and tens. Jennifer might know of collaborations with academics all the time, uh, either just uh, contributing genetics association studies for new traits or novel things or uh, pushing the boundaries of new methods uh, on how to do these things better. And I, I have tons of friends and people who, who were here after and joined me uh, who left to, to go back into academia. That, that's a guy who was here in the earlier days and went and became professor for a few years and then realized that wasn't for him, he came back. And then uh, I knew another friend. She worked at a pharma for a few years. Uh, and then went back to do a short postdoc become, before becoming a professor at UCSF. So there really are, I think people can flow back and forth a lot more freely these days. I think there's a lot of recognitions and respect for the work that industry are also doing. Yeah, I think that's great to hear because I think the conventional wisdom has, has always been, you know, at least when I was coming through, and I think still today, that once you step off the academic track, there's no coming back, right? And so that almost makes the, the decision to try something new even more consequential for, for individuals trying to figure out what they want to do, that, oh, no, if I leave this, I can never come back. But sounds like that's not necessarily the case. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not, uh, right, it, it, it's not 100% the case, but it is still true that most people who left never gone back, but... <laughs> it's because they don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but also, also because the, the type of, like I go back to the measure of success, right? The type of success that you get uh, from industry isn't always the same as the success that academia are looking for. Uh, I, I, you know, in my five years, I, I have not I have yet to write a first paper, a first author uh, scientific paper. I, I have not, a number of collaborations with, with my name somewhere in the middle, but I, I feel like I've been successful here uh, in establishing, pushing uh, the, the field, the load, the tools that I use to enable um, the kind of, you know, drug discovery work we do, uh, right? So so if I go back into academia today, 
I might be less competitive because it's not a whole lot for people to read about. But but I say the skill set that I built uh, and the, over the past few years, I can go back and do a very short postdoc and be quite productive. Again, be very competitive. Uh, or some academic institution might actually recognize the uh, the diverse set of skills that one might bring from industry and actually sort of honor that as well. Yeah, Jennifer, did you answer that question about what made you pursue industry? Yeah, well, because I'm especially interested because you're you're position is very much science communication. And I don't think that, and I know we have a lot of graduate students who are interested in in science communication, but I don't know that they always think about finding a home within an industry setting or within a company. So I'd love to hear hear sort of your decision-making and your path. Yeah, and it makes sense that they wouldn't consider it, because frankly, I, I didn't consider it for a long time either. I didn't realize that was a, a potential option. Um, by the time I was getting to the end of my uh, graduate degree, I was pretty certain I didn't want to keep doing research. Just I, I love learning about research and teaching other people about research, but I just didn't like programming is really what it boiled down to. Um, I didn't find it fun, even if I was competent at it. And so I knew I wanted to transition to communications, given my other background there. And I was looking at jobs, maybe teaching places or doing freelance writing. And um, as I was looking around, I, I was also keeping track of 23andMe, honestly, just because I, I've been a customer since 2011. So I was already tapped into the company. I already thought that they did a really great job at science communication and making all the reports really clear. And so as like a customer, I was already really excited about them. And I just happened to see a job posting from them as I was doing my job search. And I, I hate to say, like, initially I was a little skeptical because I definitely had that kind of academic bias against industry where I assume, like, anyone working for a company is evil and <laughs> corrupt in some way. And I, I did like the product, though, so I'm like, you know, I'll give it a chance and I want to meet the people there. And it was really my interview here that I realized that really, like, the research team is just like any other academic lab. It very much had that vibe where, you know, people were very data-driven and they cared about the science and it wasn't just like, oh, we want to do this to make money. Like, I did not get that perception from anyone here and I was just so motivated by how science-driven everyone was that I realized this could definitely be a home for me and it's not like sacrificing any of my values or anything that you might think of there. So I think if you can find a company where the mission aligns with your mission, kind of like how Janie was saying earlier, then I think you can definitely be a fit. And one of the big perks, especially from a research communication point of view, is just the stability. Um, I was definitely looking into like newspaper positions. And honestly, one, there, there are not a lot of them out there for science writers nowadays. And a lot of them are freelance. And I honestly didn't like the prospect of, you know, not having health care and not having a regular paycheck. And <laughs> Honestly, like adjuncting was the other option, and that's about equally bad in that realm. So there was definitely an aspect where the job security and the quality of life was a huge selling point, but I don't feel like I compromised anything. I felt like everyone here was just like a part of a big, awesome lab. Yeah, no, that sounds cool. So the last thing I want to know is based on your experience now, experiences you've had, are there any things that you would change or you think we should change about graduate training to better prepare students for careers outside of academia? Yes. I have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> and I'll say, I'll say this is something we talk about a lot on this show. So I would love to get your, your feedback on this question. Right. So one of the things that I found really sort of 
disappointing in grad school was that none of my professors had industry experience. And this could have been, um, you know, just where I was, but I don't know, I don't know how many professors can actually uh, sort of counsel students on what the opportunities are in industry. I had an advisor who just went straight through the academic track and immediately got, um, you know, a faculty position out of a postdoc and just, you know, had a lot of success there. And that's wonderful. But in my, in my path of just trying to explore other options, I didn't have any mentorship within my graduate program because everyone was so successful in their academic path um, that they hadn't really like, you know, stepped out and done anything different and then come back. So I think that this issue of, of faculty members not having any industry exposure requires that that, that these programs invite people externally to give, you know, regular talk, talks and expose the um, the trainees to what industry options look like and, and, you know, describe what types of internship opportunities exist and how to sort of, you know, just widen the, the career scope of, of the students that they're training. So that's one thing that I think... Uh, academic programs could really improve on is just getting getting students a little more prepared for the workplace and not assuming that everyone's just going to go directly into a postdoc and then, you know, somehow magically achieve one of these coveted junior faculty roles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And as we know, a lot of people don't want those jobs. That's not the job they want when they leave graduate school. Even if there were those jobs available, that wouldn't be the job that they would choose. Uh, anybody else have ideas, things you would change about graduate school? Uh, yeah, I, I'd change a couple things. <laughs> um, so I kind of lucked out on this one topic I'm about to bring up in that um, my advisor in grad school was very supportive of me having this comms interest. Um, when I was selecting my committee early on in my program, he asked if I wanted to put a science communications person on there. I ultimately decided not to just because I figured for committee meetings it's more helpful to have some hardcore geneticists on the panel, but I just having known that he was supportive of me potentially taking that career path just was lifted a weight off my shoulders. And I think um, there are a lot of programs and PIs out there where they think that, you know, your life should be your research and that you shouldn't have these other hobbies and interests where the reality is, you know, having a diverse skill set is helpful even if you stay in academia. So like I had a strong art background in addition to my writing background, and that helps me design figures to make them clearer and not so ugly. <laughs> um, and, like, my writing background really helped me in editing papers and editing my, co my colleagues' papers in grad school. Um, and so if I had just been focused on only research, I would have definitely lost out on that skill set. Or even, like, I was uh, involved with our Women in Genome Science group, which actually brought in external speakers from diverse careers, like Janie was talking about. And just like the organizational skills I learned from running a club, that was something where I think a lot of other professors wouldn't want you running some sort of external group because they just see it as a time sink instead of actually something useful. So, so the other thing I think is super important is supporting the mental health of graduate students. Um, there are a lot of studies that have come out recently showing that rates of depression and anxiety are much higher amongst grad students in the general population. And I think a lot of that is due to kind of lack of structure and support, um, this lack of work-life balance and that vacation time and just this feeling of always being on. And obviously, you know, the grad school is also very hard. And there's a lot of times where you feel very stupid <laughs> just getting through the process. And um, I, I just think programs can have a lot more institutionalized support for the grad students. And, um, you know, I, I watched some people leave my program because they didn't have that support. And 
I went through some of my own just like personal family trials while going through grad school and didn't really feel like anyone was looking out for me at the time. And I was very close to dropping out just because of that, but managed to have my own support network that helped me stick with it. But if I didn't have that, I might not have finished my PhD. And I think it wasn't because, you know, I didn't know how to do my PhD. It just, you know, sometimes life gets in the way. Life and happens. Life happens. Yeah. And grad school is very difficult. So it's even more difficult when you have other stuff going on, like deaths in the family. And so I just think that grad school can be more aware that their students are people, not just little robots producing research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Agree yeah, absolutely. That. And you feel like industry does a better job at that. Yeah, honestly, at least my experience here the last year at 23 me, particularly if I don't have other industry experience, but I do feel more like I have that support system just because, you know, I have set sick days and vacation days. And when I go home for the weekend or go home at five, I can actually turn it off. I'm not constantly worrying that I should be doing more and I should be checking my email every second. And I, I don't know, I feel like, you know, I know we have policies here where like if something happens to my dad and I need to go take care of him for a week, I can go do that. Where in grad school, there aren't really officially official policies in place to do that. So just knowing that it's on my employer's radar just makes me feel a little better. Yeah, I, I just to add on to that, I think, um, you know, having had made a decision to come to 23andMe and, you know, I was looking into doing, you know, maybe pursuing a postdoc or doing other things. And it was, it was a reminder of sort of the grad school experience because I was planning on having a child and, and trying to decide what would be the best place to go as, you know, as a working professional who wanted to have a baby. And when I talked to the, the postdoctoral programs about what their maternity leave looked like, I got some really negative feedback and was told, was mm. kind of treated a little bit like, like, yeah, if you, do that, your progress probably won't be as <laughs> as impressive and that kind of thing. And I was told that I would be able to take 20 days of unpaid leave. <laughs> and yeah, at 23andMe, the response was, was, yeah, great. You know, we have tons of pregnant people in the office. Everyone loves, you know, everyone loves babies here. And by the way, you get four months of 100% compensation, you know. So, you know, just just like the response to something like that, like a life happens kind of reality in industry versus academia, I was way more impressed with the industry response um, to how, you know, parents in the workplace are treated. So, even though academic programs can be pretty flexible and you can kind of set your own hours, there are definitely some drawbacks. <laughs> well, if you hadn't convinced everyone to go to industry previously, I think now <laughs> the sound you the sound you hear are all the grad students changing their CVs up to apply for industry positions. Uh, yeah, we have so, positions open. Right. <laughs> well, well, you know what? That is a that's a good transition into the very last thing. And that is, is there anything cool going on at 23andMe that you want to plug or anything you personally want to uh, to plug while you're here on the show? Well, I'll just generally say that um, we have a website, research.23andMe.com, which is our research team's website, and I designed it as part of my job, so I have to <laughs> plug it. Um, but it kind of summarizes the different sort of research we do um, and includes um, our 110-plus peer-reviewed publications on there if you want to check out some of the research that we're producing. And... Um, we also run a Twitter account at uh, 23andMe Research. So if you just want to generally know what's going on, it's a good way to keep up to date on the news. 
Yeah, and I would say we hire a lot of a lot of scientists who are, um, you know, PhD plus maybe one year postdoctoral experience. So if folks are looking for roles, you know, have a look at our job board and, and check out the sort of scientist level one positions uh, for that, you know, for that area. We have product science, we have health R&D, we have all kinds of areas. So don't, don't limit yourself to something that just sounds familiar. There's a lot of different roles for scientists here across the company. Yeah, that all sounds great. Um, Fa, anything else you wanted to add? Um, well, I guess uh, one, one thing that I always advise uh, graduate students or people looking uh, to for, for, in, for positions is information or interview, uh, where, you know, you go find, when you go to a conference, uh, industry people also go to conferences, and you can kind of sometimes look at the list of the participants uh, and approach them, or honestly, uh, if you know, in your extended network or uh, you look out. You look up one of us uh, on the website, and you wanted to talk to us. Send us an email. Uh, we can set a really quick phone call just to share personally about what the experience working look like. You can share something about yourself so that you know when when the position that is appropriate and fits your interest and and skill set comes up, we can keep you in mind. Like for myself, I've, all the job offers and the job I got is through that building that personal communication ahead of time. So I, I did my first informational interview two years uh, before I even started job hunting. No, that's great. That's something we always tell, we always encourage grad students to do or just to put themselves out there with those informational interviews because that can lead to something good. Well, yeah, so so Jennifer, Fa, Janie, thank you so much for taking time. And, and Liza, thank you so much for helping set this up. And I think our, our listenership will will find this really illuminating and really helpful. So thank you all so much. Hey, thanks, Josh. All right, Dan, that was my interview with Jennifer, Fa, and Janie. Wildly fascinating. What, what jumped out at Well, you? you know, the thing that st- stuck with me just because it became such a theme is how happy they seem with their roles and how, you know, I don't know whether that's because compared with graduate school, everything is better. <laughs> <laughs> or or do you think there's a real difference between academic and industry? And I guess what, what I don't know at the end of this is, are they just at a really great company? Did they just find a, a really great fit for them individually and, and many people will be happy in a different situation? What, do, what is your take? Well, yeah, I mean, that was one of my thoughts is, is I totally agree. They sound very satisfied with their job and the work-life balance and the work that they're doing. It's and, not it's not the boogeyman that it has been described to us when we were graduate students. Like, you don't want to go to industry because they take away your project and you have to work all hours of the night and then you get fired on Tuesday. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that has, Maybe that is true in some places and in some situations, but that is not what they're describing. Well, you know, we've talked to a growing number of people who've been involved who are either currently working in industry or have experience working in industry uh, on this show and... No one has had that that negative experience. You know, I do remember we talked to Randy Rabato, who, who was that Randy who shared yeah. episode seventy nine. No, but is he the one who shared that he got fired and then mm-hmm. he had it? Yeah, and he shared that you know one of those things that we horror stories were told about industry. He gets his pink slip, you know, that he was being let go. Uh, but then the flip side is, he said with his experience, he got rehired very quickly in a different position. So yeah, that's right. That's a helpful episode. So if this, if this episode was interesting or inspiring to you, go back to episode 79, the insider's guide to industry. I think some of the things that Randy described back in that episode about the collaborative nature, the team based nature of science 
really shown through here. You've got these three scientists, you know, who studied epidemiology and computational biology, um, public health backgrounds, different different aspects of scientific training that would have a hard time finding co-working space in an academic lab because typically you're focused on a, a very specific topic and you might collaborate across departments, but it's not very often, I don't think, that you're going to get this wide diversity of, of backgrounds and focuses. Um, but here they are together trying to solve this, this problem of using genomic data to improve human health. You know, and I think that's related to one of the thoughts I had. And, you know, the example was given, my dad's sick for a week. I can go take care of him and not feel bad about it. And, you know, that got me thinking, well, why don't you feel like you could do that in grad school? Um, and I definitely see that being the case. And maybe in some situations, in certain labs with certain PIs who are understanding, you would be able to very easily go do this thing that you absolutely should be able to do. But then I wondered if maybe this is just an, another example of a negative to the individualistic nature of academic research versus the more team science approach in industry. Because if you were the only one moving a project forward, if you're gone, everything involved with that project screeches to a halt. That's right. And yeah, nobody can pick up your research for you because nobody, nobody is benefiting from finishing it for you and nobody knows it as well as you do. Yeah, and maybe... You know, especially if you're doing biological research, there are probably some sort of living things that maybe are involved in your research, whether they're mouse lines or cell lines. And so, Britannomyces lines. Who knows? And so, somebody's got to keep those going. And in a team situation, Dan, if you and I are working together with maybe a couple other people and you have a family situation you have to deal with, it's no problem. The, the other three of us easily can step in and fill in the gap. But if it's just you, then. Then I'm sunk. I guess my, so. My project right? stops, yeah. And I get 20 days to go have a baby, and then I need to be back at work. Yeah, I mean, and, and that is one thing. You know, the I would be really interested to know, do all companies have policies that are as good as the ones that they talked about? 23andMe, is this a standard thing? Does 23andMe just happen to be really great? Or is this typical? Yeah, I'm going to guess that it's not standard everywhere, but I would love to hear from our listeners who are uh, working in industry jobs or even in academic jobs. You know, for the sake of comparability, write to us, podcast at hellophd.com or tweet to us at hellophd. What is the maternity leave policy at your company or institution? Because it'd be interesting just to hear how that compares across industry and academia. Because I don't think it's the same everywhere, but, but I'd like to find out. Josh, on that topic of what they would change about academia based on their current experience. And I think this maybe goes to our, our conversation a few minutes ago about whether science could be more team-based or, or be more permissive of family and life events. They went to industry and they say, the work-life balance is better, therefore I'm going to leave academia and go to industry. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable conclusion, but it also makes me want to say, can't academia do a better job? Is there some reason that academia shouldn't have better work-life balance, that academia shouldn't look more like uh, industry in terms of uh, what, what one of the people said was mental health support, um, answering emails at three in the morning because your PI emails you and expects a response. Those are the types of things that people are leaving academia for industry to get away from. And it says to me, not, oh, we should have these two different realms where some people have mental health and some don't get access to that. 
And what we should have is academia needs to improve. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question for us to explore maybe this year is why why doesn't academia have these things, right? I mean, clearly a company like 23andMe and others like it, these are fast-paced, cutting-edge, um, very much focused on being a successful company in the bottom line, and they want to succeed, meaning they want their production from their employees. Yeah, I didn't get the impression that they were sitting around playing foosball in the break room. Yeah, however, you know, these companies that probably are very demanding in some ways have employees that seem fairly... <laughs> fairly... Well-adjusted to yeah, that. Yeah, happy, well-adjusted, feel supported. So what's different? What's missing in academia? And can academia get there? somehow. Yeah. I, I think we will continue to explore that theme over the course of the next year and probably over the course of the next 15 years. <laughs> I mean, that really is the question, right? You know, I think if, if academia was more like, I don't want to say if academia is more like industry, because I don't know if industry as a whole is, is all flowers and rainbows. But if it wasn't as awful as it was, maybe we wouldn't have a podcast. That's true. <laughs> don't Wait I don't, a don't minute. know how else to say it. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh, yeah, we're going to have a new podcast, uh, Surviving Your Life in Industry, where you get yeah, four exactly. months off from maternity leave and nobody but only calls you four on the months. weekend. Only four months. <laughs> You're going to want six. Oh, my goodness. Uh, but anyway, this is a really interesting topic. Uh, and again, thank you to uh, Janie and Jennifer and Fa for taking the time to talk to us. I found it really fascinating. Awesome. Well, Josh, how can people find us online? We have... Uh, you know, we are still committed to this thing, to this show, Hello PhD. We continue to get really inspiring and heartwarming and challenging emails and tweets from people. We want to keep it going. Um, how can people write to us and contribute to the conversation? Absolutely. So if any of our listeners have a question they'd like for us to talk about on the show or a topic idea, we would love to hear it. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at HelloPhD, or you can leave a message on our Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. We certainly love your feedback. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that too. You can become a patron. Simply go to our website, HelloPhD.com, and click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit Patreon.com slash HelloPhD. We would appreciate the beer money. Thanks to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. Excellent, Josh. Well... 2019, we have rung it in. Did you did you try a second sip of your sour beer? Uh, Dan, I haven't been able to go back yet. I think the third <laughs> sip is the one that will really change your mind. Yeah, I'm going to nurse this one until uh, 2020. All right. Well, we'll see you then. Josh. All right. See you.